Today's scripture reading comes from the first chapter of Ephesians, verses 3 through 14. First, however, let us pray. God of grace and gentleness, God of power and might, come to us in this time, we pray. Quiet in us anything that threatens to distract us, that we might fully focus fully on you and your word. Help us to hear you, that our lives might better reflect your love. Amen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. He destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the richness of his grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and insight he has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. In Christ we have also obtained an inheritance, having been destined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to his counsel and will, so that we, who were the first to set our hope on Christ, might live for the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you had heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in him, were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. This is the pledge of our inheritance towards redemption as God's own people, to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, last week we talked about creationism and a literal fundamentalist view of scripture. Do you really have to believe that in order to call yourself a faithful Christian? Well, in case you missed being with us last week, the answer is no. No, you do not have to believe that God created the world and everything in it in seven concrete days. Now you can, you can choose to interpret scripture that way, but you don't have to. And if you do, I'd, I'd go so far as to say you might miss out on an awful lot of what the Bible has to offer. Now that conversation from last week, it matters so deeply that it takes place within the large scope of the Christian tradition. This week, however, our conversation is rooted much closer to home. Because you see, Predestination is almost always tied to Presbyterians. For better or worse, it is one of the legacies of John Calvin. Calvin is the French theologian who is commonly considered to be one of the earliest forefathers of our Presbyterian tradition. And his ideas of predestination are so tied to us that every single new members class I have ever taught from Michigan to Kansas City to New York City to here in Columbia, every single class 
the question always comes up. I don't have to believe in predestination, do I? So I'll show my hand early again this week. No. No, you don't have to believe in predestination in order to be a faithful Christian. But, and I may just be speaking for myself here, if I'm going to go so far as to say I don't believe in something, especially something that is so tightly tied to my own tradition, well, I want to make sure I understand exactly what it is I'm saying I don't believe. And in the case of predestination, it might actually be easier to start with what it isn't. Predestination is not the idea that we live our lives as puppets, that every moment of our life is predetermined before it happens. As if our actions and circumstances are not to some degree our own responsibility, but rather the result of God pulling strings according to some choreographed script. A friend of mine, he was late to a meeting once, and he flew through the door minutes after we had started, and he said, by way of introducing himself, I'm sorry I'm late. I'm Presbyterian. I was predestined to be late. As if his tardiness had absolutely nothing to do with his oversleeping that morning. As if his oversleeping that morning had nothing to do with his staying up too late the night before. As if his staying up too late the night before had nothing... Will you see what I mean? Yes, absolutely, without question, God is within every moment of our lives. And God brings meaning to every circumstance of our lives, and God redeems every brokenness of our lives. But God does not predetermine every step of our lives. Now again, just for the record, that's not actually what pre what <laughs> that is not actually what predestination is all about. I mention it only because it's one of the most common misunderstandings of an already tricky doctrine. So this is my attempt to summarize what predestination is with both theological integrity and some reasonable measure of brevity. Predestination claims two things. First, it claims that God is how and why we have life. And second, it claims that God is not only how and why we have life, but that God invites us into eternal salvation at the end of this life. Now here's how all that came to be. One of the biggest theological shifts to come out of the Protestant Reformation was toward the concept of unmerited grace. It's the idea, the understanding, the conviction that we cannot earn God's favor. We cannot buy God's favor. We cannot bargain or negotiate for God's favor. God's favor, God's grace, simply is now, John Calvin, he believed so fervently in God's grace, he believed that everything good about humans was a result of it. And even so much so that without that grace, we are fundamentally wretched creatures. He called that total depravity. 
It's the idea that sinfulness permeates every facet of our being. Except, thanks be to God, grace shows up and saves us from ourselves. Whatever salvation we know, in this life or the next, comes only and exclusively from God's abundant grace. And it's grace that, again, comes to us not because we do anything to deserve it, but because God loves us so much, well, God just can't help himself. That is where and how all of our stalwart Reformed theologians ever since Calvin have rushed in in his defense. They have attempted to reassure all of us who have ever raised an eyebrow at this idea that love really is ultimately what predestination is about. Now Calvin truly did believe he was crafting a doctrine of comfort. And to some extent, I think he was right. I find tremendous relief in the idea that eternity lies in God's hands, not ours. That God's love for us is so great, our lives are ultimately always in God's control, not ours. Our human history suggests that this is incredibly good news. But that's where Calvin actually ran into a big problem. You see, he couldn't help but notice that some people, well, they kept acting in ways that suggested they weren't particularly aware of grace in their lives. So what could he possibly make of this if God's strong and saving grace really is imbued in everyone? How can some people still act so poorly? Calvin remained adamant that grace could not ever be subverted in any way by mere humans like us. And the only way that he could continue to hold that very high view of grace was to conclude that if somebody didn't believe in God or didn't live in a way that reflected God, well, that had to be rooted in God's will as well. And that resulted in his declaration that God in his sovereignty and for the glory of his justice passed over some people and in condemnation of their sin ordained them to eternal death. That is officially known as double predestination. Some are destined for heaven while others are destined for hell. It is unofficially known as the precise point where he loses most people including, and especially, most Presbyterians. I'll admit it does bring me some measure of comfort to know that the second half of his doctrine, the double part of predestination, came not from Calvin's understanding of God, but from his inability to reconcile his observations of humanity with his understanding of God. It's a struggle I can relate to, and I imagine that many of you can too. But even still, I simply cannot take predestination 
as far as Calvin. So instead, let me tell you two stories that illustrate what I do believe about predestination. Because our scripture reading today, it does say, In Christ we have also obtained an inheritance, having been destined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to his counsel and his will. So it was nearly 12 years ago now that I was studying for the very same exams that our new pastoral assistant, Hannah, will take next week. Ordination exams. I implore you all to pray for her. Those exams are no walk in the park. But those many years ago, now, I was studying for those exams with my friend Barry. Barry and I are friends even to this day, despite being about as different as can be. Barry is tall, and I am short. Barry is loud, and I am relatively quiet. Barry is an off-the-charts extrovert. I am a textbook introvert. And where I studied content, Barry studied strategy. One of my most enduring memories of seminary will forever be Barry standing up on the table in the no-talking reading room of the library declaring at full volume, in life and in death we belong to God. Jenny McDevitt, that is all you ever need to know. Whatever the question, the answer is in life and in death we belong to God. And he jumped down off the table having finished his mini-sermon, and went for a run while I continued to memorize doctrines and creeds. Well, you better believe that two days later, as I sat writing my theology exam, every single one of my answers did, in fact, include the promise that in life and in death, we belong to God. And to this day, it is one of the gospel truths that I cling to with every fiber of my being. Because God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. In love, God destined us for adoption as his children. I would learn even more about this from another friend. I stood with her in the hallway of the Assembly Inn at the Montreat Conference Center, of all places, as tears ran down her face. Now, she was no stranger to tears because she had struggled with infertility for what seemed like an eternity. Months had turned into years as she prayed and waited and endured terrible medical procedures, and yet, still, no child. So I had seen her cry before, but this time her tears were tears of joy. Because you see, she had just gotten a phone call. She and her husband had just been chosen as adoptive parents for an infant that was mere minutes old. And in fact, everything was happening so quickly when they called to ask her if they were ready to bring home a baby, they could give her no further information. Was their child a boy or a girl? She didn't know. Was the child black or brown or white? She didn't know. Would the child like music or prefer math? She didn't know. Would the child grow to follow the rules or search for loopholes? She didn't know. She didn't know any of that. All she knew 
is that she was finally going to be a mother. And her love for that child was a decision that her heart made instantly and irrevocably. There was nothing that child needed to do. There was nothing that child ever could do to change that. I believe predestination is something like that. And I think, or maybe I just hope, that if Calvin were alive today, he'd agree. I think he would, because it really is true to the initial premise of predestination. Where it all went wrong, as best as I can understand it, is when he doubled down with double predestination. He did it in order to reconcile things that were really irreconcilable. The thing is, a life of faith always requires embracing things we do not fully understand. And with all due respect to Calvin, forced reconciliation is not faithful reconciliation. Forced reconciliation takes things or ideas or people that cannot hold the same space together and it warps one of them until it fits with the other. Faithful reconciliation is messy and hard and painful and slow, but it honors the integrity of everything and everyone involved. I can't help but wonder if we as a country in the weeks and months to come will reach for the low-hanging fruit of forced reconciliation, or if we will dive deep into the work of faithful reconciliation. If we will keep saying, this is not who we are. If we will keep saying, we are not racist, I am not racist. If we will keep saying, we need to come together and heal and move on. Or if we will acknowledge that what we have witnessed is not who we want to be as Americans, but it is who we have been, and it is who we are right now. If we will acknowledge that racism is absolutely part of the air that we breathe, the laws that we pass, and the stories we inherit. If we will acknowledge that unity without accountability will not hold not in any lasting or meaningful sort of way. And I don't know what it looks like, not all of it, not for us as the church. I don't know with whom we might partner or what groups we might form or what initiatives might come forth. I can't possibly know that now. But I do believe that as disciples of Jesus Christ, we are always called to the work that is faithful, no matter how hard or messy or painful it might be. A few years ago, back in New York, I attended Auburn Seminary's Lives of Commitment Breakfast. It was an event that was honoring five women for their exemplary moral courage. It was actually where I first heard Stacey Abrams speak. 
And when I knew that it wouldn't be the last time I heard her speak. But it was one of the other honorees, Shifra Bronznik, who said something I have never forgotten. She said she lives her life by this code. When there are no human beings in the room, or at the table, or in the conversation, be the human being. She says there are plenty of ways to live our lives, but to be the one who consistently speaks from the position of love of neighbor is the only way to be truly human. And I remember watching my nephew Logan and his soccer team back when he was four years old. On more than one occasion, he or another player, they would wander outside the lines marking the field and get distracted by something. When this would happen, the parents would all laugh. Oh, Logan, he's not playing soccer anymore. Look at Danielle, she's not playing soccer anymore. You see, those kids, they were free to wander outside the bounds of that game. But once they'd done that, they weren't playing soccer anymore. And in the same way, we can choose to live our lives as if we are not defined by unmerited grace. We can. We do it all the time. But as God's children, as ones who are destined and adopted, redeemed and forgiven, marked with the seal of the Holy Spirit, when we live our lives in ways that do not reflect such remarkable grace, well, we're out of bounds when we do that. We aren't being human anymore when we do that. Do you have to believe in predestination? No. And are you a terrible person if you do believe in predestination? No. Because either way, what has always been predestined about your life is this. You are loved by the Almighty God, maker of heaven and earth. And there is no power anywhere that can ever change that, not for you and not for anyone else. So the greatest and most faithful response to that kind of love is to live every moment of your life like you do believe in that. Pray with me. Gracious God, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.